because being a student, a, a student of spiritual growth means that you're always changing. You have to. It's a constant evolution. And if I'm attached to a persona, there can be no change. Hi, I'm Derek Mills. Welcome to the Glow Podcast. I'm excited to share my conversation with Sean Korn, a celebrated yoga teacher and activist who was also an early collaborator on Glow. We discuss her book from 2019 called Revolution of the Soul, Awaken to Love Through Raw Truth, Radical Healing, and Conscious Action. The book writing process, as she shares it, helped her face hard truths about herself. She shares stories about the people she met along the way, who helped her shape her understanding of spirituality and how her first true yoga teacher came through the wisdom of a friend dying of AIDS, not on a yoga mat. We discuss her work on and off the mat and what she's doing to move deeper into herself and how her inner work connects to creating greater wisdom in the world, ultimately to help spark a revolution of the soul in each of us, awakening to our purpose and becoming agents of change. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Hi, Sean. Hey, Derek. I'm so happy to see you and I'm happy to be here. I'm so happy to see you too and also happy to be here. Grateful that you are here with me in the early days of us launching the podcast. You're one of a small group of people who said yes to doing the podcast without having heard any prior interviews of mine. So I, I don't take that for granted. And I, I, well, I'm grateful for your trust. Well, you and really your family, we go back many, many years. And so it was an easy yes to, to say based on just our history and all that you have done within the community. So thank you for inviting me to be a part of it. Oh, thank you. Yeah. You mentioned my family in those early years. It was well, early first year, 2008, 2009, it was just me and my brother, Ryan, and mm -hmm. it was such a joy to witness you and Ryan working together because <laughs> he was overseeing all everything production from planning to shooting. And the banter that the two of you would have was, was hilarious. You could have taken that, um, that bit on the road. Truly. I mean, your brother reminds, reminds me a lot of my, both my brothers who are really quick witted and the banter is always, you know, smart, but with a tinge of like 12 year old, just coarseness, which I roll with very easy. And so I love to banter with your brother. Loved it. Um, working with, working with Ryan was always really great. I, and if he was, if he's listening to this, I'm sure he'll know. The thing I couldn't stand more than anything in the world was when he would tell me that I had to write descriptions for my class. <laughs> and you could see just the black cloud come over me the moment he mentioned it. All banter was off. <laughs> that was not the highlight of my creative experience <laughs> at all. Got used to it. But man, he would ride me about that. Sean, Sean, we need descriptions. Yeah. So that, that was the memories I have going way back when. That's funny. Yeah. And it was really fun for you to meet my parents as well, you know, as, yeah. as they were younger back then. And you know, I was looking back before this conversation to see when we did actually meet. And it looks like it was around 2009. 
our mutual friend and amazing great photographer Robert Sturman. I think he was holding an event at our old studio back then and uh, off the mat into the world was part of it. And then I think yeah. later uh, one for Yoga Free Youth shortly thereafter. And I think that's how we met. And yeah, most people don't know that in that original space that we had, I think it was about seven or eight years, we had a lot of fundraisers. Uh, every class was free except for the ones that were donation-based for fundraisers. And it was a lot of fun. It was it was a wild time and, and interesting time for community. And, and it was fun also creating the videos for your website at the time, yeah. even a short stint of, of creating some videos for Oprah, which was yeah, which was interesting, and um, oh, I forgot about that. That's right. I know, right? And I, you know, it's I, as you're talking, I'm reflecting back because that was the first time, uh, like you, we were seeing the beginning of digital, of the way in which really the world is now, the way it was moving. You guys were the precursors of what was about to happen, and as a as a teacher and as an artist, going into those rooms, having to navigate a camera, knowing that there, just tone of voice, um, where your body is in the space, not to turn your back or your butt, you know, up against the camera. All these little things that at the time were really awkward in the learning. Now I'm so grateful to have those skills because as our world is pivoting to digital and it's becoming necessary to be able to include all people from around the world there, there has to be some skills. And I feel like those early days taught me a lot about how to work with the camera a little bit differently. I'm very grateful for that time. Um, it was awkward at times for me, you know, just knowing there was this camera on and that the work was going to be there forever. And any little mistake in my communication was, it was you you can't you can't do any do overs. It's just is what it is, and having to trust that process, it, I learned a lot, and it's it's helped me um, to be a better teacher online today as a result. Nice, yeah, I can recall invoking Ryan again, Sean, do that over. <laughs> <laughs> the booming voice in the background. <laughs> yeah, 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 I know. I think you're referring specifically the, the no do overs were more the live classes. Yes. Um, but even some of those we would stop midway and, and do over. It, yeah, we always, it was always very important to us that the teacher felt very comfortable and proud of the work that she or he was putting out. Yeah. 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 I think I taught more live classes than I did. Um, I, I didn't do that many classes that were just tape. Maybe I did. I don't remember. It's so, so long ago, but I remember doing more of the live classes, but there was a couple times where Ryan's voice would, you know, boom out and I'd have to do it over again. And I would be silently cursing him in my head, <laughs> but also very grateful because I knew it was in my best interest. And in, in the experience for the, for the viewer, it was in their best interest also. So I was grateful, but it was, uh, just learning curves like anything. And now it's become second nature. You know, you got, you are all, really on the forefront of what's now becoming, especially because of the pandemic and COVID, for you know, us to be able to work and to show up, we have to be able to be fairly literate when it comes to being on camera and um, exposing ourselves, if you will, to the broader world via technology. 
So thank you for all that you did and all the ways in which you helped support me learning how to pivot in this way. Nice. Thank you. Yeah, it was certainly the wild, wild west back then. And I think if Ryan were here today, I think he would want me to maybe say that he never enjoyed doing it. It was always, it's always really hard. You know, confrontation <laughs> oh, is never it. easy, but it made the, out, the output better. Yeah. Like you said. Yeah, certainly. Yeah. All right. Let's pivot to your book. Okay. <laughs> sure. <laughs> All right. So you wrote a beautiful, powerful book called Revolution of the Soul, Awaken to Love Through Raw Truth, Radical Healing, and Conscious Action. It was published in 2019. It now being 2021, I'm a bit late, but <laughs> it really doesn't matter because your book is evergreen. I mean, it's the classic heroine's journey. I don't mean the drug, I mean female <laughs> or hero. <laughs> yeah. So it's the heroine's journey and you take us on this very evocative journey of how you excavated and continue to excavate the most hidden parts of yourself. And you truly seem to leave no dark corner unexplored. <laughs> Ultimately, as you say, so that you can be in the world while being of service to yourself, to others, and to our planet. And you show us your flaws, your mistakes, despair, pain, learning, growth, gratitude, joy, and just so much more. And, you know, while reading it, and I don't think this is just because I have worked with you and know you, I, you just made me laugh, made me cry. You broke my heart multiple times over. Uh, it helped me connect more deeply with my heart, with love, with joy and, and myself. And I think the last thing I'll say is you know, it's a story of you seeking how not continuously seeking how not to fit yourself into some predetermined box is like your soul just actively seeking out how to not live on autopilot, not live an on an unconscious, unreflective life, but instead a journey just continuously unfolding an unfolding of a, of a, of a, of a self granting of permission to be fully yourself. And after reading it, when I closed the book, I just, I thought, wow, it's so clear that you pulled yourself inside out over the past decades and probably quite intensely to write this book. And so I thought that would be a great place for us to start. Like what, what was it like to write this and eventually put that out into the world? Something so transparent and, and vulnerable. It was a nightmare. <laughs> it was horrible. <laughs> it was so intense. Um, thank you for, for your description of my book. I really appreciated a lot of your reflections with it. Um, I, I, I had been told for years now, um, when people would come and hear me speak, they would say to me, you know, Sean, you should write a book. You should write a book. Um, and I would, nod and say, sure, one day I'll get around to it. But in my mind, I always knew that there was no way I was going to write a book. And because it really hooked into a very deep and um, unpacked limiting belief, one that tells me that I'm not smart enough to write a book. I don't have the, the practical skills to write a book. People are going to find out that I'm a fraud. Uh, if I even try to put down word to paper. Um, I recognize that as a teacher, that I was good at what I did because of just time and skill and experience. But when you're teaching, 
and in an embodied space, not just me as a teacher, but the students, you're hearing from a very different part of your brain body because I've heard myself contradict myself in a class. From one paragraph, 10 minutes later to something else, I have said something completely different, heard myself say it, but realize that what people were listening to weren't necessarily my literal words. They were listening to the, the, the feeling behind the words and they were getting the meaning. So I didn't really have to clean up my sentences. You know, you just take people on these journeys. A book's not like that. When you read the first chapter, you can't contradict yourself eight chapters later. There has to be a through line and consistency and it really intimidated me. And so I would just deflect when people would say you should write a book, but internally something haunted me in that because it was a limiting belief and part of my teaching always says, and I know this from based on my own studentship, is that you have to orient towards what scares you most because in the unpacking of that is going to be core to your own healing. It's going to excavate some of the, the traumas that haven't been dealt with. So there was a part of me that knew that this was going to have to happen, whether it got published or not, but that in the process of unraveling these stories, something else was going to be revealed. And so eventually I said yes. And in saying yes, I immediately surrounded myself with um, mentors, healers, really older, older women, therapists, because I knew that I had a sense it was going to be a very deep journey. I had no clue, though, how intense. And I wanted to get as much support. I started writing the book right before I turned 50. And I'm 54 now. It took me three years to actually write the book. And... I knew that I knew that it was I was going to go down some kind of a rabbit hole. The day I wrote the book, which was I started the book, was uh, I think in this it was right after Christmas. I opened up my computer, and the first thing I wrote was. Well, I lit a candle, you know, all that stuff, set my intentions. That was the first example of procrastination of um, <laughs> that would be my through line for the next three years. But when I finally sat down, took that deep breath and started to type, the first thing I typed was, my name is Cece. And when I did that, I stopped writing and I leaned back and I'm sure there was an audible gasp because Cece is the name my family calls me. It's my nickname growing up. I stopped being Cece after I moved away from home at 18 when I moved to New York City and had to get a job and they need to see my license. Um, Sean is my real name, but even the people I grew up with didn't know my name was Sean until I until my senior yearbook came out and they give you, you know, your very official names and then they put your nicknames in parentheses. So my identification growing up was Cece, not Sean. So when I wrote my name is Cece, a name that except for my parent, well, except for my immediate family and friends, I don't have an identification with that name anymore. So I knew, I knew I was in trouble. I knew that I was going to have to write the book from 
a different perspective, not just Sean, but Cece was going to come out. And, you know, I kind of took a breath and put that to a side for a bit. And then I just started to type. And all of a sudden, information is just channeling through me. It is the most creative, liberating experience I ever had in my entire life. And I'm thinking to myself, I can't believe that I was so scared about this. But this is effortless. This book is going to fly out of me. I'm going to be done in a month. All I need is just a little tweaking, a little editing. <laughs> and at the end of the day, I, I finish, close the computer, and I'm like, and I'm done. That's it. That's all I got. There was probably maybe 4,000 words. I'm under contract for about 80,000. So basically I've written a pamphlet, but that pamphlet was all I had. I truly, then I got scared. That, That was the moment where I thought, I don't know what to do next, which became another one of my mantras for the next three years. Every single day I would hit this wall where I would go up against my, my creative capacity, my intellectual capacity, my spiritual capacity, and the words, I don't know what to do next would come out of me. And I figured it out with each day, with each experience, a lot of pacing, a lot of tea, a lot of prayer, incense burning, a lot of time spent in therapy, um, a lot of crying, um, I would do whatever that next right action was to finally finish the book. And the, when I decided that there were two voices in my head, there's Sean, Sean's a teacher. And I hate talking about myself in third person, but it's the only way I can really describe what this process was. And that's why the book is written the way it is. The narratives are written through the lens of Cece. Cece wrote the narratives. Sean wrote the teaching Hmm. because Sean is experienced, has had therapy since 18 years old, has lived a very sober life, is very disciplined, has an enormous support system, has worked through a lot of trauma and has confidence just based on age. And so I could do the teaching from that voice, whereas Cece had childhood sexual trauma, had didn't have a lot of support, had issues with drugs and alcohol, um, all sorts of very dysfunctional behavior as any young, young person who's highly sensitive with trauma might. And so there were very different energies when I would write from Cece, Cece's funnier. Um, uh, Cece's more like, uh, just a little quicker and Sean's much more serious. And so I wrote the book. Each chapter is a narrative based on starting at 18 up until present. And each chapter unpacks a learning lesson. And then I, as Sean, get to come back in at the end of each chapter and say, in 2020 hindsight, here's what was really happening. Here was the teaching. Here was the lessons. Here's what I couldn't know then. Mm. which was unfolding right in front of me, but I didn't know it because I was too in it. And as the book progresses, even Cece in those narratives becomes more mature, a little bit, I like get it quicker. The rate in which I stay stuck 
gets shorter and shorter in those narratives until you can start to see the, the shift between CC and Sean and the way they, they both integrate. So that was my behind the scenes experience writing the book. It was hard. I don't know how people do this as a living, like people who do this um, prolifically where every day they wake up to write. Um, I tried to talk myself out of it at least once a day and really had to face, I had to go back into my trauma I discovered that I have something, I found this out in therapy, that's called emotional recall, that when you write um, and you begin to piece out texture, smell, um, conversations, that my memory is very, very specific. And meaning that suddenly, if you mention... Uh, if, if you mention, if I start to visualize like the color of a dress that I'm wearing, suddenly I'm back in the room, I hear conversation, I can smell whatever was cooking in that moment, but I might only be four years old. And the whole book was like that for me and that I had to experience emotional recall and it was re-traumatizing at times, but also so incredibly healing because I do have the, the tools and the support now that I could even go back in there and be like, all right, let's do this. Mm -hmm. Let's do this again, but in a different way. Mm -hmm. Wow. So that is Sean in the grayed out sections of each chapter. Yeah. CC in the, at the, at the beginning of each chapter. Interesting. Yeah. Huh? Mm -hmm. I'm going to revisit parts of that and look at it <laughs> yeah. through that lens. Except that you can see as I'm, you know, especially the New York in, in New York, it's all CC, you know, mm -hmm. and then it starts to, I start to, you know, to shift and change, but I love CC because, and again, it's weird to talk about myself in this way, but she was, you know, feisty and a survivor and uh, passionate and brave and curious, super open. Um, just because I experienced uh, trauma in my youth didn't mean that I was like, curled up in the corner, rocking myself. I had, I developed obsessive compulsive disorder, which shows up in the book as a, as a really important and very clever survival skill to help my nervous system regulate when I felt like my world was out of control. I, I give enormous props to my younger self for moving through that and still being really joyful and open to life, even though I got my ass handed to me a little bit. And uh, so, yeah, she, she, I'm very proud to have brought her into the book because uh, that part of my personality deserves some space um, and a voice and doesn't really get enough of it. So I definitely, you'll, you'll see, you might see it more now if you do revisit those chapters. And it's clear that the, the two of you are looking out for each other all along the way. Like, even though you're right, Cece does appear more in the earlier stories of your life. There is, there are other voices, there are other Sean's that are also there guiding you and connecting you and, and making or allowing you to be available to receive the gifts and the wisdom from all of these different lovely people that you encounter that you refer to as angels in, yeah. in your life. And Gosh, I mean, to 
you know, when I think of Billy, for example, I mean, I, there's so many and I, we can't get into all of them, but you know, from, from your stories of you as a, as a little girl, like you mentioned, like you go deeply into that, Billy, Mona, the, 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 the sex trafficked children, the boy and others in that trash heap in Cambodia, that sweet, lovely man in, in Atlanta, your parents. Mm -hmm. I, there's no way that there aren't multiple yous looking out for the totality of you and guiding yeah. you through this journey. And I wonder if we mentioned Billy because Billy really seems to be the backbone, the foundation of what you eventually come to know as yoga, this four letter word yoga, that is just so hard to, to, express in one sentence or to define. And uh, I think of all the stories, we might only have time maybe for him. So let's, mm -hmm. let's try that. Yeah. You know, it's really sweet because when I, I when I, I was 18, when I met Billy and in my youthful eye, including when I wrote the book, I see Billy physically in a very specific way. Um, and just recently, someone sent me a picture of Billy. And it's the first time I had seen Billy in, since he died of, of, of AIDS. So this would be back in the 80s. And what I, I, I was so startled when I saw his picture, A, because it brought back so many memories, but also because of how young he, to my eye now, all these years later, that I was like, oh my God, he, he was still so in the prime of his own life. He was so beautiful. And back then I thought he was so old. <laughs> <laughs> and so it's very funny to, yeah. to have received that picture of him because, and I will treasure it forever because it's the only photo I have. But uh, Billy was a man that I met when I worked, I worked in an all male gay sex club called um, Heaven. And, and this, this whole story is very symbolic and, you know, I can look back at it and really see that God was at play. Um, you know, when that, that, when they say like, I need a sign, I need a sign. Well, here I am on the precipice of my own spiritual awakening, seeking for some guidance, seeking for something, but resistant and scared because, um, my own upbringing, you know, I was raised at agnostic, atheist even um, at times, uh, but also a part of an interfaith family, both Catholic and Jewish. And the God that I witnessed growing up was very patriarchal, very mean-spirited, punishing. And because of my trauma and because of my obsessive compulsive disorder, it was very much attached to if I do things in a certain way, bad things won't happen. So because I was so suspicious of this punishing God, I felt like here's how I was going to bargain. All right, I'll touch things or step on things or swallow in a certain way, but don't let my mother die or don't let anything bad happen to my cat, whatever it might be. But there was always this bargaining that was attached to my spirituality until I was like, I want nothing to do with this. And yet my soul ached for a relationship with source. My intuition, since the time I came into this world, I 
knew there was something, but how it was being described felt incongruent with that longing inside me. And so I work at this club called Heaven. It was it was an annex part of another club called Limelight, which is a very famous New York City club. It's closed now. Um, but this was a private club up in what would have been the rectory because Heaven and Limelight was in an old church. And so again, you know, I want a sign. And so here I am serving alcohol to, you know, this is uh, to kids on like, you know, what were they doing at the time? You know, ecstasy and uh, ketamine. Um, it was a really wild place. But I got a job working up at Heaven, and I was the only cisgendered uh, female allowed in that space. I felt very, very safe and very comfortable behind the bar. Um, I was in the disco. In the back rooms was where they had sex, and I wasn't allowed back there. And um, But every night, Billy would come into this club. Billy was an African-American man in his 50s. In the book, I said he was, uh, was probably around 58, but now that I look at that picture, I'm thinking he was, he was younger than that. Um, but Billy had been married. He was part of the Baptist community where he had grown up in Ohio. He had children. He had grandchildren. But when he came to terms with his sexuality, he was ostracized from his community and to end his family, and eventually came to live in New York City to live out his truth. And he frequented this club pretty much every night. And we would talk about everything. And Billy had issue with, at that time, I was doing a lot of drugs and alcohol. I worked in clubs. I had access to all of that. Plus, I had trauma. And the obsessive compulsive disorder got worse when I moved away from home because my anxiety got worse and the way in which I could self-regulate was by self-medicating and that included drugs and alcohol. So I wasn't addicted, but I was definitely moving in a direction um, that was serious. And so he gave me a really hard time about that, but I, I just playfully ignored him, but we were close. But this is not the time of cell phones or anything like that. So we didn't have a relationship outside of this club. Well, Billy, um, there's about a three-week period I don't see Billy, and which is very unusual. And I would ask people where he was, and no one had an answer. And after about three weeks, he comes into the club. I see him coming from across the way. And as he comes towards me, I lean up onto the bar to go throw my arms around him and give him a hug. And as I do, I notice that he's got these open sores on his neck and on his cheek. And so I say to him, like, oh, my God, Billy, what's that? And he touches his face and he says, they're symptomatic of my disease. And as soon as he said, they're symptomatic of my disease, I remember just my heart just, it felt like it stopped for a moment because this was in the, you know, this is in the late 80s mid-80s, it's like, I think there were 40 reported cases of HIV AIDS at that time. Now there's 40 million plus. And even though I was sophisticated enough to work in a nightclub, I didn't have enough information around HIV AIDS to 
be prepared for what he was about to say. So I said, what disease, knowing the answer? And he says, I have AIDS. And when he said AIDS, I physically recoil. I pull way back. And I mean, I can even see his face right now. Like, I'll never forget the sadness in his eyes when I did that, the rejection, the betrayal, whatever it was for him. And I felt awful. And I apologized. And he asked me if I wanted to understand more about his disease. And I said, of course. And so he explained to me all the you know different ways that you can get it. And I asked a bunch of questions. He answered the questions. And then I said to him at the end, um, I asked him if he was... Um, I asked him what was going to happen. And he says, well, there's not a cure. I mean, there wasn't one then. There's not one today. And uh, he said he was going to die just like that. Just, I'm going to die. And I asked him if he was scared. And he said he wasn't. And the reason he wasn't be was because of his faith in God. And for the second time that night, when he said the word God, I recoiled and I pulled back and he laughed though this time. And he said, Sean, don't you believe in God? And I told him that I didn't. And he asked me why. And I explained to him about my upbringing and I explained to him about a little, I didn't understand my trauma then. Uh, I, I, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have known how to communicate that, but I did tell him about the obsessive compulsive disorder and my superstitions and, um, the way that I always was punished every time I messed up and I was always messing up. And so that God couldn't exist because God wouldn't make bad things happen the way they do. And he listened um, and then said that he understood how I felt, that he had one time felt that way too. But he asked me if I wanted to see God. He says, Sean, do you want to see God here? And I look around the club and there's literally naked men chained to the wall. And I was like, yeah, show me God here. Mm. So Billy points to Danny the Wonder Pony. You can actually even Google Danny the Wonder Pony and you'll see some pictures of Danny. <laughs> he was a fixture in the New York, club, in New York um, nightclub scene back in the 80s. But he was this guy who would put a saddle on his back and for a dollar you could climb on his back and hit him with a switch and he would trot around the dance floor. Um, Dan Billy points to Danny and says, God is right there. And then he points to this woman named Violet. Now, Violet would have been a, would we know Violet as being a transgendered woman, a transgender woman today. Back then, she probably wouldn't even use her correct pronouns, probably re re referred to him as a crossdresser. But Violet was um, uh, a six foot four, um, woman who came in who dressed like my elderly grandmother with a little gray wig and a hat and a beautiful, beautiful soul. And Billy points to Violet and says, God's right there. And then Billy points to two men arguing in a booth. They, they just in suits and ties and they looked, you know, like wall street, straight guys, like, you know, like one of my brothers and they're all like playfully arguing over a pitcher of beer. And Billy said, God's right there. And then Billy takes his hand and he puts it across my chest and he takes my hand off the bar and he puts it on his chest and says to me, Sean, God's right here. 
And he says, I'm going to tell you something now, and I hope you remember this the whole of your life. He said, ignore the story and see the soul and remember to love. You'll never regret it. Ignore the story and see the soul and remember to love. You'll never regret it. And then went on to tell me that Danny, the wonder pony, Violet, the men in the booth, me, him, it's all a story that all of us are here to learn what love is and that all of our journeys are unique and they're meant to be unique and that they're all aspects of who we are, but they're not who we are. But the, the journey itself is going to expose all of our fears, our limited beliefs and our humanity so that for no other reason, so that we can become more loving, more empathetic, more compassionate. And when we do become more compassionate and empathetic and loving, that the end result of that will always be love, or excuse me, will always be peace and love and freedom and liberation. And that the judgment was in me, not in what, whatever that, what he was saying was that what they were, what Danny and, and himself and everyone was doing, that was between each soul and the God of their own understanding. That essentially we all had these roles to play out and we were going to be bumping against walls through the whole of our life until we get it, but no one can rush that process for us. And it was the first lesson of yoga that I had been taught before I even got on a yoga mat that he was explaining to me that God is truth and love and God shows up in a myriad of different ways and that all of us were awakening to that God within ourselves. But because of ego and trauma and all of our shadow stuff, the noise of our small self got in the way of really the glory of our highest self. And Billy died within three, about three weeks of that conversation. And I couldn't have understood the significance of what he was telling me at that time. It would take years for me to really appreciate the wisdom, the gift that Billy gave me, but it did help me it helped me to understand and make peace with my openness and my curiosity. The fact that I oriented towards what some people would call the dark side and helped me to really appreciate the human condition and experience and the way that every single moment is purposeful as it leads to spiritual maturation that cannot happen unless you walk through whatever it is that you're walking through, no matter how dysfunctional or dark or hard, that all of us are opening to love at a rate that is very individual. And that's what Billy taught me in that story. And that's why I shared it first, because the rest of the book is an invitation to learn what love is and to reclaim God. I get, I get tears in my eye when I think about uh -huh. Billy. It's, yeah. What a beautiful soul. Yeah. Yeah. Truly. I want to reflect for a moment on the fact that you, Sean Korn, 
say you were taught your first lesson of yoga before you ever heard the word yoga. Yeah. There is an intermediary point in the book, in your journey, where we, where you share Mona with us. And the reason why I'm choosing now to bring her up is because of something that occurred to me while you were speaking, where you know, somewhere in your book, you, you reflect Mona's words saying something like the process of self-understanding is not an intellectual one. It's primal. And what gets in the way is the way. And you also say, it's not about understanding your pain, as Mona said to me, or even articulating it at which, by the way, I excelled at. Mm -hmm. It's about feeling it, which I sucked at. And she has this really fun way of, of how she kind of castigates you and, 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 uh, and, and, and refers to all, all you yogis are so great at, at beautifully describing your feelings, but so many of you don't have access to them and don't truly feel them. She addresses directly the consequences of spiritual bypassing and some other unhelpful tendencies. So I think it would be a helpful moment here to briefly bring Mona into the discussion. Yeah, yeah. Mona, so I had been practicing yoga at this point for many years when I met Mona. And I met Mona because I was, I was dealing with a broken heart. And for the first, it was my real, like my real first true broken heart, not like an adolescent broken heart. It was an adult broken heart. And, but it kicked up a lot of my, my trauma. And I, uh, yoga wasn't working for me for the first time in the past. I could get on a yoga mat and move through some of my discomfort and suddenly it wasn't working. And Mona helped me to understand that the yoga that I had been, that I learned back in the eighties and the nineties, it's a little bit more patriarchal than it is today, perhaps. And there was a lot of information related to detachment. Big feeling comes up, you detach. Go into the witness mind and observe your shadow, but don't allow yourself to identify with it. Where we can get taught to dissociate. And I don't mean literally someone teaches us how to do it. It's a part of our survival skill. Um, we just disconnect from those emotions. So when I was taught that term detachment, um, that worked for my nervous system. But what I learned from Mona is that detachment without awareness was dissociation. And that the only way to move through the dissociation was to actually orient towards the shadow and feel everything and not allow any space for bypass or avoidance. What you were, what we, what I was being taught was presence, which is what yoga is anyway. But um, yoga, without any real sophisticated understanding, gives permission to actually avoid the depths of our own humanity. And um, going to going to Mona helped me to dismantle from the identity that I had with yoga at that time and bring me into a more authentic, raw, 
uncomfortable, but very human relationship to what true healing could be. Going to the pain, the continued attempt to go to the, the depths, as you mentioned, seems to be one of the more effective routes into empathy. And you know my wife, Lisa Sean, she, yeah. I, she has taught me more about empathy than, than anyone else that I, I've ever known. Um, of course, coupled with my own therapy and, and other, other group work, et cetera. And it seems that this is just what is so needed right now in the world, mm -hmm. exactly what you're saying. So thank you. I have been dissociating ever since I was a kid um, on so many levels. Uh, I was taught to avoid pain or to, to, um, to witness it without indulging it. And yoga gave me another practice to be able to do that. I mean, even when I was a child, I was uh, the only girl on an all-male track team, and uh, which was very difficult because especially back at that time, the men were, the guys were great to me on the team, but didn't really take me seriously. But I was actually a, an excellent athlete. My father, who was, who at one point was a well-known athlete, um, a, tr a track uh, star, I guess. Uh, one of the ways in which my father taught me to manage pain, because he never wanted me to cry in front of the guys if I got upset or felt defeated, so my father would hold my hand to the viewers right now, you know, to the listeners, you can't see what I'm doing, but he would hold my hand and he'd take his fingers on either side of my knuckles. And he would start at first to gently squeeze and he would have me stare him in the eyes and he'd have me breathe and he'd say, are you going to cry? And in my head, he'd, he'd have me repeat. Don't cry. Don't cry. Don't cry. Don't cry. Don't cry. As he would slowly squeeze my knuckles harder and harder and harder until they really started to feel pain. But my father was teaching me as an athlete how to dissociate from physical pain so that I can endure it and get past it. You know, no pain, no gain. Now, I used to say to my father later in life before he died, like, that was so fucked up. Like, that was horrible <laughs> to train me yeah. actually how to avoid my feeling body. Because as an adult, I learned how to um, suppress any uncomfortable emotion. I learned how to trance myself out of actually experience it, experiencing it via either obsessive compulsive behaviors, touching things in even numbers, um, or don't cry, don't cry, don't cry, variations of that. And so when I started to practice yoga, big feelings come up. I learned how to dissociate from those emotions without actually processing them. So I would just dance behind them while simultaneously learning language through the sacred texts that explained the human experience, that explained the, the evolution of one's individual soul and got really literate with that language so if something happened, I'd be like, oh, this is what the saints, the sages describe as. And what, but without letting myself actually have the experience. Yeah, so so when I'm, I went I'm, to I'm, sleep, all good. I'm good. I'm good. I got the words. 
I can present them. I can say them. I'm good to the world. Yep. And I felt like I was good to me too. Like I felt like I, I was fine. It wasn't until I met Mona that she helped me to understand that I had just found one other, basically a new drug of choice. The way in which I was practicing yoga was numbing me out. And even the drishti, all the things that I was doing to, to narrow my focus of attention, all of it was just kicking in some of the old survival skills. Mona made me have to get really messy and really raw and lose control. What obsessive compulsive disorder and yoga did for me was to give me agency and control over my body. Um, even in the, the organization of the, the muscles and the bones, everything was about control. Mona came in and disrupted all of that and wouldn't let me experience yoga from that point forward in the same way. She's the one who taught me about sensation. She's the one who got me to make noises in my yoga practice um, to get really present to the shadow and to learn ways via beating, uh, using tennis rackets and things to express the anger. Because what was underneath the, once I got past the dissociation, expressed the anger and the fear, what was underneath it all was grief. And Mona helped me get to the grief. And it liberated me in my yoga practice it liberated me in all aspects of life. And it brought me into a deeper relationship with spirit than I could have ever imagined because a relationship with spirit is not a intellectual experience. It's a felt experience. It's abstract. You got to let go of everything that you think, you know, to open yourself up to like a sixth sense. And that requires vulnerability. And the way in which I had been practicing yoga in my early years, and I don't discount it, it was an essential part of my own healing. That, that control was my first introdu- introduction to true, like that was an aspect of agency that was titrating my nervous system to prepare for Mona. Had I gotten Mona at 18, I, I couldn't have handled it. Yeah. But the, the yoga helped me to learn how to get present in my body, how to breathe, how to get still. Mona then came in and just shook it all up. But my foundation was grounded enough to be able to go into that very primal experience for as long as I had her until she died, which was um, 11 years. Yeah, without that foundation, that experience of going to pieces can be in and of itself quite traumatic and, and counterproductive. Mm-hmm. It was, and it was traumatic. Working with her was traumatic, but she was so funny. And so she made even your most traumatic moments so, oddly irreverent and delightful. And you're both sobbing hysterically and cracking up at the same time. Um, I'll never know in this lifetime another guide like Mona. She was so odd and so magnificent and probably not for everybody, but she, she took this Jersey girl and just like flipped me upside down, shook, shook all the stuff out of me and taught me how to put myself back together again and helped me to come into a very deep relationship with God 
and also like forgiveness, seeing everybody as a teacher, letting the bullshit go, and also helping me to understand that everyone is dealing with trauma, whether they're aware of it or not, and doing the best they can with what little they know based on their own experience. And that doesn't mean I have to hang out with them, but it does mean I have to give them back to God and cut the cord that I'm, that I'm attached to my, you know, my resentment. And, um, she taught me grace, uh, losing Mona was the saddest thing for, for me and for the community. Um, but, uh, I'm very grateful for every second that I got to spend with her. Yeah. When I was reading that section, I was thinking I have got to meet Mona. And then when you no. wrote that she had passed away in a tragic car accident, I, yeah, that made me sad. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, you know, so many people have said the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> they, they like, they say like, Oh, I got to meet Mona. And then they get to the next chapter. And, um, yeah, she died in, in, a, in a car crash, a horrible car ca crash. Um, but Mona visits me and, um, you know, I, I still feel her, her teaching is the, probably the most significant in my body. And, um, it's the bravest work that I ever did. Uh, those 11 years that I was with her and, I will live the rest of my life in infinite gratitude. It's why I wrote a chapter and I did everything in my power to jump into her skin and to try to represent her, her personality and her spirit. And I'm sure I could not do her justice, but um, it was a joy to live with her in that creative way and to hear the way that she, the way she talked and just her, her delivery. Um, I felt like for those months that I wrote about Mona, that she was alive with me at that time. I mean, for me, I feel like you did her justice. It was as if I could hear her voice through yours. Your book at times feels like I'm reading a novel. I mean, the section with Mona was just one of those moments where she has some multidimensional character development and you thoroughly convey how important it was that she entered your life at that time and, and that you, know, you showed up to do the work with her. Well, she has a book called Invisible Warfare that you can still get on Amazon that teaches all about anger work and how to rinse the big feelings and how to get raw. And uh, I think it's why now as a yoga teacher, there's often um, a, a veil, a mask that I've seen yoga teachers jump in, uh, uh, a way in which they want to present themselves to the world and distancing themselves from their own humanity. And truly, it was because of the work I did with Mona, why my, I, I try to be really authentic to who I am. I never pretend that I'm not also simultaneously on a very deep spiritual journey. I just happen to be able to articulate information in a way that for some is meaningful and accessible. And so that's the work I have to do. That's part of my own dharma and purpose and truth. But first and foremost, I'm a student of this and that I have to be maintain a sense of humility for the process because it is really messy. And if I wear that costume and get comfortable in that costume, costume I won't do my work. Um, because being a student, a, a student of spiritual growth means that you're always changing. Um, you have to, it's a, it's a constant evolution. 
And if I'm attached to a persona, there can be no change. And so my, my book doesn't end with me suddenly getting it. My book ends with me in one more like aha moment. It just gets more complex, more nuanced, more sophisticated. And like I said before, I get it quicker. Like I've got tools, but God is still pulling back the veils and saying like, can you love now? Can you be in truth now? Um, where's God now? It never ends. So Mona was the one who really said, uh, that's why she used to, she in the book, you know, she would refer me to like, you know, oh, enlightened one, oh, guru, um, <laughs> and make fun of yeah. the identification yeah. uh, that was that I had and tease me about it, you know, all meant to break it all down. You mentioned earlier a certain group of people distancing themselves from the inner work and maybe wrapping themselves in a, in a, a mask of presenting to the world in a certain way. Have you found that after reading your book that changed for some people, like the, like those that you're referring to, do you feel I think it's such an important part of your book, which is what you said in terms of how you ended it, where you really clearly define you know, throughout the entire book, but it comes to a culmination at the end that you know this this thing called yoga or a practice or that, you know this constant process of of excavating aspects, dimensions of, of oneself breaking oneself apart, putting the pieces together, creating more pieces. It's, it's not trivial. And uh, it's almost like learning or knowing what life means or what love means or what empathy means. You know, these aren't words or concepts that we can just define and, and say, okay, check that box. Like I'm, I'm good to go. And, uh, you know, and you, you say that in different ways. Like you, you refer to, you know, yoga is now, Yoga is every single moment. Yoga's job is to show you what's actually happening, not what the mind thinks is happening or wants to happen. Yoga exposes the truth. It allows the stories buried deep within the body to emerge out of the tension that, that you've released and into the open spaces you've created. And then you end this one paragraph by saying, but here's the thing, only if you're open to receiving them and that's not easy and that this is not a quick fix scheme so I don't have a question there. I just, I just want to acknowledge that mm -hmm. it's really important that someone like you presents this four letter word in this way. And I was just curious if, if in doing so, if you got certain feedback or you, you experienced maybe some shifts in the world as a result. I mean, I, it, it depends. <sighs> I don't know if I had a real expectation on how people would receive the book and how it would impact them. I wrote the book that I needed to write, even though I tried to talk myself out of it the whole time. Um, there are so many chapters. The, the Talking about Patabi Joyce, I didn't want to put that in the book. 
talking about my own internalized racism. I didn't want to put that in the book. And, but every time I would, that would come up for me is when I knew it had to be in the book that, that, that fear, that resistance, it's all ego and it's only in service to protect me. Whereas if presenting this information, not by pointing my finger out to the world and saying, look at your internalized bias. Um, I'm actually saying, look at my internalized bias. And uh, let me model to you what it looks like, how it shows up and how hard it is to extract yourself from it when it's a part of your cellular body. And I felt an obligation, a responsibility to take ownership for my own humanity and present it in these pages and hopefully giving other people permission to then take accountability for their own shadow self. I couldn't attach myself to whether or not people would get it. All I could do was present it and get comfortable in my body with what I, what I did and take the hits if I got them um, and hope that it would be in service. The good news is, is that for some people, this book has been very impactful. It has given them tools and insights and reflections and made it easier for them to have really hard conversations, whether it's around trauma or obsessive compulsive disorder or um, abuse within the yoga community or uh, the, the uh, power and privilege, um, internalized racism. Uh, people, it's met people in different ways depending on where they're at. I don't know how other yoga teachers, I don't really know how people are responding to it in that way. In some ways, that's not my business, um, the work they do. Just like as a teacher, I really trust that people are on their own path. And it's not for me to grab them by the shoulders and say, you got to get this. All I can do is say, this, this work is really messy and it's really hard and complex. And sometimes it's really funny and so super heartbreaking. And what a privilege that we get to do this work because the alternative is to stay dead in the soul. And if we don't do the work, odds are we're going to replicate behaviors that are going to hurt a lot of other people. And so why not at least try to do the work and just navigate the discomfort? And here's what that might look like. And by the way, it never ends. So don't think that you just take a couple of yoga classes and you got this that even after all these years of doing yoga and therapy and having access to the greatest teachers in the world, I am on a constant quest for that next level of awareness. Um, and, it's, it, it, and it will come. I know it will come. I wait for it to come. The difference is in the past, I would have been terrified when it did because I would have known everything needed to change. Now, when it comes, I can take that exhale and say, all right, here we are in the inevitability of change. And with that, there's some grieving, there's a death, but there's also transformation. And that's what I hoped my book would reflect. So I don't really know how other yoga teachers feel about it. You know, 
maybe they're polite and telling me they love it because we have all, you know, I have such a longstanding relationship with so many teachers. What are they going to say that it sucks? Um, I also made it very clear to the entire yoga community and all my peers, friends, and family that I was really not interested in any uh, constructive criticism related to my book, mm. that all I had the emotional bandwidth for was it's brilliant and I love it. Anything else, any other feedback, I'm not interested. I can't change it anyway. So just kind of keep it to yourself, you know, gossip amongst your friends. Um, appease me with just saying like, you know, love the book, great. So I try not to get too caught up in what people's um, perception of it is. When I finished that book, I knew I did my job. I knew it was the book that I needed to write. It's better than I thought it was going, that I thought I was capable of doing. And at the same time, it's exactly what I knew I was capable of doing. And so I'm, um, whatever anyone else's experience of it is, just like anything else, it meets you where you're at. You might read this book today and be like, I don't get it. And then 10 years from now, read it. And you're like, you know, in a, you're like rocking yourself because you're starting to walk some of these experiences and now you can live it in a different way. It's interesting you put it that way because I would recall you sharing some of these stories with me throughout the last 10, 11 years since we've known each other. And I sometimes would get parts of the story or none of the story. And, you know, our time knowing each other has also tracked a very sizable shift in my own growth and willingness to go to places of, of great pain for myself and, and feeling that I uh, previously either didn't know I wanted to, or was afraid to do so. And now at 47, I so much appreciate now how you have continued to show up, especially as it pertains to how you've been of service to not only people here in this country, but to people in other countries as well. And just as a brief side note, you know, one of my joys of the privilege to connect with you as we do and as we have is that I sense every time a more evolved Sean. And you know, as I mentioned, sometimes I don't fully understand it or what you're sharing. Um, <laughs> but the takeaway that I feel is every time I see you again, I speak with you again, that there's more Sean, there's more Sean present. And as we wind down here, I, I do want to focus on service and privilege and you know, some of the wisdom that you share in terms of if your heart, as you say, if your heart is shut down, you will likely just do more harm. And without love, without God, then as you say, I am the problem. And part of why I asked the question earlier in terms of growth and, and, and learning as a result of, of reading your book is you know, this one line where you say, I have to be willing to sacrifice my image as a good person in order to be a whole person who has both faults and graces. And then a few pages later, connecting inward to minimize the chance of more suffering. And you then quote Lilla Watson, uh, the concept of if your liberation is bound with mine, then let's work together. Yeah. And 
so it's interesting how the narrative arc of your book and the merging of Sean and Cece, and who knows how, how many other parts of Sean merged as a result, that it ultimately culminated in an evolved sense of and engagement with service and, and privilege and racialized identity and, and how we navigate race in this country. Again, I don't have a question there. I just wanted to reflect that back to you as something that really had a strong impact on me. Well, I, I appreciate that because, but it's all part of that evolution. Um, you can't know until you know. And for years I'm doing yoga and yoga is about my health, my body, me healing my trauma, my relationship to spirit. And then was suddenly put in a situation where I had to be, where I was in service to people who didn't look like me who didn't come from the same socioeconomic background as I did, who didn't have the same access to resources as I do. And my response to them and their response to me was something that confused me that I didn't understand. And for the first time, a new layer got peeled back where I got to, I had to look deep into one more way in which not only do I create separation, but the way in which I benefited from that separation and that it's in my body. It's not something that I just woke up and decided, uh, you know, that I think I'm going to create separation. But it's an indoctrination based on upbringing and education and religion and socialization. And it's as real in my body as, as anything else that I've inherited, like my curly hair and my blue eyes. And it propelled me on a whole other very complicated and very confusing internal search um, that was as essential as when I was starting to unpack my, 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 my childhood sexual trauma. Having to unpack internalized racism, bias, discrimination, stereotyping, prejudice, when you live in a society that doesn't normalize that conversation in any capacity and you have the privileges that let you bypass that conversation because it's not going to affect my life um, to confront my internalized race racism. But my spiritual life is saying, actually, it does because you can't be free unless we're all free and our liberation is bound. And so that was so confusing trying to understand power and privilege and systemic racism and how my the disease of whiteness and white supremacy and all the ways that I participate in that. It took so many years of forcing myself into that conversation, especially because at that time, much the, the 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 white community is is a fraction more open now right now to be in this conversation about looking at whiteness as a construct and recognizing their own complicity in it just a little bit more but 12 years ago 10 years ago when i really actually it's a little bit more than that when i started to started to question that within myself i didn't have a lot of other white folks to go to to say how do we deal with our whiteness when our whiteness might be the problem and is creating so much suffering for others? And I know I'm a good person and I'm invested in being a good person, 
But what does it mean to be, like I say, a whole person that includes the faults and the graces? How do we integrate that? Because if I'm attached to my goodness, then I'm not going to look at my racism or my sexism or my homophobia or any of that. That journey was hard and it's still very hard. It's easier now because... A, I've got better skills at it. There's been amazing people who've come out with resources like like the book Me and White Supremacy, for example. Um, there's so many books out right now, White Fragility, that really can help us to kind of unpack that and give language to it. But I knew in the writing of this book, again, I could not tell people what power and privilege looks like. I had to show people. I couldn't tell people what their internalized racism is or looks like, I had to show them. And I didn't want to do that. It was very humbling. But again, it's part of my spiritual path. It's if I don't do it, if I don't normalize this this conversation, why would I expect any other leader to? And so this has been my commitment will continue being my commitment. And I've only still scratched the, the, the surface of this, of the question related to justice. But now where I'm at in my path at 54, this was always there. It's always been about justice. It's always been about equality. Everything that we say in yoga about peace, about oneness, unity, it's it's all the, it's in the texts. Ahimsa is a, not just about do not do not cause harm or do not, do not harm, it's disrupt harm when you see it. Practicing ahimsa means you disrupt harm. And so I live my life orienting towards where I see harm and where I cause harm for others and commit to unpacking that so that I'm not the problem. I will be the problem for the rest of this lifetime. Maybe in lifetimes to come, I will get this. I know that I will be saying I'm sorry, apologizing, asking questions, and doing the work until the day I take my last breath. And I look at it as a privilege to be able to do that. I don't have an expectation of perfection in this lifetime. I have an expectation of commitment and discipline, the tapas that they talk about in yoga, of moving towards this discomfort. So that perhaps in other lifetimes, I can actually participate and be a part of that freedom that I long for. So it's, it's what I want everyone to know. You do the work, let it be mes- messy, know that you're always changing, say you're sorry often, give people a friggin' break when they don't live up to the glory um, you know, for themselves because of their own either ignorance or you know, unchecked work within themselves. And know that there's something bigger that's going on for all of us that we're a part of, that we're participating in. And the way in which we can participate with true empathy is by by orienting towards our own disowned self and honoring the journey as we've experienced it for all of its faults and for all of its beauty. Because only then can we look at someone else with... um, with a true sense of humility and honor and meet them where they're at, not where we think they should be. Um, and that's, uh, 
that's that's where I'm at now, and that's what I wanted to express. I wanted to take people in that on a ride to help them to understand that maybe today they need to do chaturangas as I did just to get in my body. Maybe one day they'll get into a stretch and suddenly for the first time feel an emotion like I did, you know, maybe one day they'll learn tools to fully express themselves. And then maybe one day they'll also start to look at things like what is unity and what is truth and what is love and what do I have to do in order to contribute to the necessary change that can ease this world towards peace and pray for the strength to tolerate the discomfort as we dismantle the attachment that we have to our ego so as to expose the illumination of our magnificent and ever-evolving souls. That's that's why I wrote the book. That's beautiful. <laughs> Thank you. May we all be co-conspirators with you, st yeah. standing shoulder to shoulder. Yeah, yeah, it's deep. It's deep, and that's the, that's the thing, though. We have to be in relationship with each other while we do this. We make the commitment, because we will make mistakes. Yes. And I make, hopefully I make the, mistakes all the time. Oh, yeah, it's endless. It's just getting comfortable with taking accountability and asking the right questions and also learning how, when, just to stay silent. Um, but it, it's, it's a painful but necessary change. And it's one that I hope for all the people who are listening to this, you know, we're, we, because of this pandemic, we have an opportunity right now to reimagine our future what we were doing before didn't work. We cannot go back to what was normal. It wasn't working for a lot of folks. For some, it was working just fine. If you look like me, you look like you, we were, you know, we're coaxing. Yeah. Um, but it wasn't working and it hadn't been working for a long time. What has happened has been an excavation of the shadow within our culture. The, all the, the, the racism, sexism, homophobia, transphobia, ageism, ableism, all of that has been pulled from the bowels of our society. And it's providing an opportunity for people to really see it. People like you and me, I mean, people who live on the margins and, and folks of color, they've been seeing this, this craziness for years. Mm -hmm. It's us who have been given a different lens in which to view the world and now you can't, un I can't unsee it. I can't unsee it. Mm -mm. And now we've got to learn a new vocabulary and, and commit to this. But it's, it's, it's very humbling. Um, and if you're on a spiritual path, buckle up, because this is what it looks like. And if you dare to say we are one, then you've got to figure out where we're not the same. And who benefits from that oneness and who does not. And do everything in your power, including using your privilege, to begin the process of social transformation that is inclusive to all. Um, I hope that all the people who are listening to this uh, find the support, find the tools, find the community, but commit to this as a lifelong endeavor because the world will, peace will be inevitable if we do this kind of work. Buckle up. <laughs> Buckle up. And if you need help <laughs> buckling up, read Sean's book. It's an example of how to begin the process, stay in the process and come through the process before entering it again, yes. <laughs> over and over again. 
Uh, yeah. You mentioned a few books earlier. I want to add. I want to add one to the list. It's uh, Professor Rhonda McGee, The Inner Work of Racial Justice. Uh, check out our episode number two, where I interview her. That's great. Yeah, that's that. Those are excellent. That's an excellent resource. Um, I hope. Uh, I hope you're going to continue to have other leadership like that on on these po podcasts. Um, I think it's so important for people to hear. Um, so many different voices and especially people who represent um, the march the, the folks in the margins bringing in um, people of color um, transgender acts activists uh, just introducing all different points of views and visions and commitments I think is invaluable for folks at this time uh, I agree we agree at glow completely and that's that's the plan. If you're oh, listening to this and uh, if you're doing the work that Sean just referred to, reach out to us. We'd love to hear from you. Two last questions, Sean. Is there anything else you want to discuss? Anything you want to promote? Uh, where do we find your? I know you have classes online. Yeah. Um, you, you um, if you go to SeanCorn.com, my website, um, I'm doing all sorts of online classes called Revolution Within. And it's a... Uh, a really deep dive supporting people during this time. I'm committed until the end end of December of this year to just supporting people and giving them tools to manage the anxiety that they're feeling, uh, the trauma of this moment, helping them reimagine the future, learning some of the skills, not just of yoga, but therapy and um, just other forms of healing to help prepare people to move into this new normal with some sense of self-regulation um, and also looking at the ways in which they can contribute to social change, but from the inside out. And so you can go to my website um, or of course, off the mat into the world.org if they want to um, learn about how to step into leadership during this very critical time, our faculty is quite remarkable. And actually, Derek, you should just go and look at our list of faculty and interview every single one of them. They're amazing folks who are doing incredible work in the world um, who might not have massive platforms yet, but man, they're moving in that direction. And we feel really fortunate to have them as our faculty. And they're teaching all sorts of different um, different. Uh, ways to engage. But again, it's always through the lens of, of yoga or transformational work or embodied practices. And um, so those are those are a couple of ways to uh, to access me. Nice. We'll certainly do that. And we'll put both of those links in the show notes. Last question, Sean. Yeah. So this is kind of a side note, just so you know about it. One of the things we're adding into our product, if not by the end of this year, by early next year, is when you engage with anything on our platform and maybe taking a class and maybe other actions, uh, we are going to contribute to healing our planet. And there are a variety of ways that we're considering doing so. And so I'm ending each episode by asking this particular question. Um, like, so how is the interconnectivity between your own self-care and care for our planet evident in your life? Or in what ways do you connect with our planet and how have these connections de deepened your desire to protect and preserve our environment? Well, my answer to both those questions are the same. It's, it's through my commitment to veganism. Um, that has been something that I have, um, I, 
was first a vegetarian really since I was around 18. I, I talk about it in my book a little bit. And over the years, it evolved um, understanding the impact that factory farming has on our environment um, in terms of clear cutting, the, the rainforests, the, the, um, the amount of waste that is being put into our earth, into, our, into the land, into the water, the chemicals, the additives, the preservatives, the terror. I mean, I'm an ethical vegan, meaning I, I'm a vegan for the animals, but I'm also a vegan for the planet. Um, because if there are other ways in which we can nourish and nurture our entire society, um, we wouldn't have as many as the climate issues that we do um, because they use so much of it in factory farming and in development um, to be able to feed the grazing, the production of animals, all of that. So my veganism has definitely been a way in which I practice self-care because I don't put knowing about the mind-body connection and trauma and all of that, I have zero interest in putting into my body anything that has been traumatized and that I am taking in that that energy um, and also the karma related to, um, to eating animals. Uh, but I also recognize the impact that it has on our planet. And so because I care so much about this planet, I want to live as sustainably, as mindfully as I possibly can, and that includes the um, the uh, unnecessary slaughter of our animal friends. Nice, thank you, Sean. Oh, thank you so much, Derek. I really appreciate being a part of this conversation, and to all everyone who's listening, I wish you all the best. So much happiness and great health, and just. Just a thousand blessings on your journey. Enjoy the ride, buckle up, breathe deep, cry often, laugh hard, and forgive always. Thank you. Thank you to our entire team behind the scenes at GLOW. I'm so grateful for your care and commitment to serving our members around the world. Thank you to our teachers for so beautifully sharing your gifts and talents. I'm also grateful to our lovely community of GLOW members. You've supported us since 2008, and because of you, we get to continue to do the work we love. It's the combined support of our team, our teachers, and our community that grants me the privilege to continue to bring you the GLOW podcast. Thank you to Lee Schneider at Red Cub Agency for production support, and the beautiful music you're hearing now is by Carrie Rodriguez and her husband, Luke Jacobs. And remember, take care of yourself because our world needs you. Thank you for coming on this journey with me. You can find the GLOW podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or glo.com slash podcast, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm Derek Mills.